the abounding joy of New Testament hope. This is part six. And we're studying the objects of our hope. Today, righteousness. The text, Galatians 5, 1 through 11. Galatians 5, 1 through 11. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This, this is a choice, eh? That's interesting. Why would people submit to something like that? Their wills are involved. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there's something attractive in that yoke of slavery that would make people tilt into it again. <clears throat> Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, the sign of, of uh, entering into that old covenant, the Judaic covenant, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're putting yourself back under the realm of works, law-keeping, and you can't make it there. That's what Paul's saying. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's the sermon title right there. Objects of our hope, righteousness. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only, and here's the definition we're going to come back to, only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's writing to Christians. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That, that's interesting. Very rarely is leaven used in a positive way. Once in a while it is, but almost always it's a negative use. This, this shifting from Christ, he says, it's a, it's a gradual thing. You don't, you don't really notice it happening until you've drifted quite away. So that's, that's something he wants us to know about, wants you to know that. This, this starts happening in your life before you notice it's happening, the way yeast works. So, so what Paul is doing is he's saying, you need to focus here because if you don't, you'll miss this happening in your own heart. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, the law works, why am I still being persecuted? That has to be one of the strangest sentences in your New Testament. If I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, here's, here's the proof that I'm preaching the cross of Christ. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Let's pray. Years and years and years ago, when we used to sing songs like, I will cherish the old rugged cross, 
we probably didn't sing with the understanding that increasingly cherishing that view would lead to persecution. It would lead to unacceptance. It would lead to being called fanatical. It would certainly lead to being called judgmental and intolerant. So we are going to be talking about the cross and the righteousness that comes through the cross and how that needs to be cherished by faith in our hearts and lives. Purge our hearts from the leaven of self-reliance and make us great hopers in righteousness to come. Through Jesus, I pray. And everyone said, we've been... uh, Here's what we've been going over so far in this biblical study of hope. If you take it back to about the first week, we started talking about the power and the importance of hope, how it empowers both faith and holiness in our Christian walk. That's all online. And then we turned our attention to three sources of hope, not objects, sources of hope, those being the vastness of God's grace, the assembling together of the body of Christ. Hope is corporate in its maintenance in our lives. It's not individual. And the encouragement of the scriptures. The three sources of hope. And then finally, we started looking at the objects of our hope. The things, the things to which we look that inspire our hope. First, we looked at what the Bible calls the blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Titus 2.13. Then last week we studied the redemption of the body. And it's talked about as an object of our hope, that glorious transformation that takes place when the dead in Christ are raised. Today I want to talk about something quite different. I want to talk about the hope of righteousness to come, the hope of righteousness. And I have six thoughts that come bubbling up out of that text. We'll see if we get through all of them. The phrase I want to look at is actually in the fifth verse, Galatians 5, 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says that you and I are all involved in this process of waiting for a hope of righteousness. This is an unavoidable part of Christian experience. And Paul says it's important that we all understand exactly how we are to maintain that hope of righteousness in our hearts. But before we get right into that phrase, I want to look at some of the surrounding verses, okay? And see what prompted Paul to to write in such detail about this hope of righteousness. Because the situation is what caused Paul to write about the hope of righteousness. So point number one, there were people in Galatia who were hindering Christians from obeying the truth. You can see that in Galatians 5, 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And you kind of sense how disturbed Paul was with whoever these troublemakers were in the church. These people were trying to pull the church away from Christ. Not by saying Jesus isn't God or there's no Trinity or Jesus never rose from the dead. Nothing like that. 
They were trying to pull the church away by adding to what would be necessary for salvation. That's always the way it works. You see it in Galatians 5, 4 to 8. Paul talks about it pretty specifically. You are severed severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Severed. You have fallen away from grace. So you, you fall away from this, you fall away from that. You see that? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what brings this topic to the surface in Paul. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. You made a good start. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This, this persuasion, these ideas that are working like, like, like yeast. It's not from him who calls you. This is not from Christ. It's not from the Spirit. Now, that's a serious situation. People, people can um, teach things, say things, express things right in the church that don't come from God. That's amazing. They can add to and they can twist the message of Christ. There's a place, I didn't read this text, where Paul makes this even clearer in Galatians 6, 12 and 13. You need to be careful what happens when you go to church, Paul says. Look at Galatians 6, 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. That's the goal. They, they see something offensive in the gospel that the culture will find offensive and that they can get away if they can just bring in an element of, of self-reliance and self-expression and self-confidence and works. My esteem gets built that way. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Of course not. The sign can't make change the heart and make you keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Notice those words, good showing, good showing. That's there. And then notice the word boast. That's there. These people want to have room for... uh, human accomplishment in the process of salvation. We like, we like to look good. I mean, we like to make a good showing. We like to be successful. People like to boast. They want something to be proud of. Religion should boost self-esteem, not Christ-esteem. Very common thinking. In fact, the text says that when human achievement is removed from my standing with Christ, people will persecute the bearer of that kind of gospel. They don't like it. These people, right in the church, were compromising the gospel simply so they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So, 
the sign, the sign of circumcision. It was used as a, a picture, a law picture, an accomplishment picture, a works picture, rather than a sign of being a recipient of God's grace, which when you look back, that's what circumcision always was in the Old Covenant. Originally, it was the outward sign that these people had been freely called in Abraham and freely delivered by God's grace out of Egypt. That's what circumcision was a sign of. It was never meant to be a tool of human accomplishment or merit or works. Now, that's the situation, I said. That's the situation Paul is addressing. you got a church church with Gentile and Jewish believers mingled together with all sorts of ideas about what what makes God happy anyway. Right in the middle of his argument, he gives these words, these beautiful words that I said we were going to look at in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, everybody in the church, everybody here in this room, Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So, in contrast to those who wanted to mislead them, in contrast to those who wanted to somehow uh, express an independent, self-controlling, boastful spirit in their own merit that lurks in all of our hearts, Paul speaks, he speaks of a kind of righteousness that is still future. You know, we're waiting for it, and it's a hope. So it's still in the future, a hope of righteousness. There is a coming righteousness that I am presently anticipating and relying on, but don't possess yet, and you don't either. It's a whole way of life in that, Galatians 5.5. And then, and then Paul adds another important detail. It's in the same fifth verse when he speaks of of his waiting being through the Spirit, right there. Through the Spirit. It's it's a kind of supernaturally inspired expecting. It comes, I talked about the sources of hope, remember the word in in earlier in this series? So this this expecting, this spirit-inspired expecting, it comes from the word, the promises of the word. And so Paul says that this is all received by faith right there. It's it's received by by faith. So it isn't something that can be earned or worked up just in human emotions. Now there's a reason I took a, a bit of time working through the mechanics of that Galatians text. What was going wrong? What troubled Paul? And what he said to correct it. Because the details tell us a great deal about the biblical hope of righteousness. There's a way of life. You're supposed to be living it. So am I. There's a way of life that Paul sets up. And it's the exact opposite of these troublemakers in the Galatian church. That's why that fifth verse is so important. Paul means to contrast. You compare things that are similar. You contrast things that are different. And so Paul means to contrast two totally different approaches to reaching God. And the very essence of what makes a Christian different is in that fifth verse. Let me just make one more 
background point. And we're like halfway done, so don't, don't panic. One more background point before we look at the words of verse 5 specifically. What, what we're seeing in this process this morning is sometimes there are biblical principles, very practical, important principles that only yield their fruit when you're patient enough to do what we did. What, what happened? What was going wrong? What's the context? How, what kind of correction does Paul offer? You can't just breeze through that and expect it to bear weight in your soul. You have to let these thoughts land on your heart. Okay, point number two. The Christian relates to God as an heir rather than a slave. I get that in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. The fifth verse, of course, is tucked in there. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, you'd think he'd just say forgiveness, but he doesn't, the adoption of sons, sons and daughters. The Greek word means both. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, so you, me, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice those words. You're, you're no longer a slave, but a son. So here's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, you got two choices here. You got two ways of relating to God. There are only two roads open to you. First, you can relate to him as a slave. That's the works approach. I mean, we're not that familiar with the concept, thankfully. But a slave's value to his master was dependent on only one thing, his work. His only worth to his master is to relate to him on the basis of what he produces for him. Secondly, you can relate to God as a son or a daughter. Now, son rests in the standing that he has by virtue of, of his birth. Think about new birth. Son is the heir to the inheritance of the father, not because of his grades in school, not the son's annual income or the son's good looks. The son is an heir to what the father has just Because he's a son of the Father. That's what makes him an heir. In any sane, normal home, I mean, I fear there are some sick exceptions in this world, but children don't live in fear that they will no longer be counted as children. They may want to please their parents, but they don't have to strive to be their parents' children. In any healthy, normal home, children rest in the love of parents. Paul says we're heirs. Our our God is a good heavenly father 
and he's a faithful Heavenly Father, and he gives good gifts to his children, and his faithfulness isn't earned by the efforts of the children. Slave or heir? No wonder. No wonder Paul opens our text in that fifth chapter of Galatians with those words, Galatians 5.1, for, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back there. I mean, what beautiful words. Christ has set us free so we might stay free. Not, now, not free to do whatever we want. Not free to live in sin. The words need to be taken in their glorious context. We are free to live for God as a child of his love rather than toiling as a slave out of fear. So, so here's how this happens. The Father's love for me as his child is the reason I long to please him in all that I do. That's the reason. The result is holiness. But, but it's not the holiness of dead works. Or as Paul has already described it in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And then I said we'd come back to this definition. But only faith working through love. Faith working through love. So with these background concepts, let's look quickly now at the hope of our righteousness in Galatians 5.5. There's a kind of righteousness, point number three, that's still in the future. Paul says it's a hope of righteousness. I know what he means. I know what it is to hope for righteousness. I know what it means to go through times where I experience the frustration of not being what I want to be for my Lord. Has anybody else ever been there? Only four. This has to be the godliest church. I know what it is. I know what it is to, to feel the frustration of, oh, what I'd, what I'd like to be for the Lord in a situation. And sometimes what I end up being. If he hadn't so lavishly loved and graced me through Christ, and if I wasn't so eternally thankful to him, those moments of discipleship failure wouldn't bother me at all. But he has loved me and graced my life, and I do love him deeply. And so those moments of failure hurt. They hurt. And here's an important point. There are two bad responses. There are two bad responses to that inward disconnect between what I long to be and what I presently am. And I have to avoid them both. So do you, with, with steady, consistent resolve. First, I need to resist complacency. That inward, that inward logic that says, well, nobody seems to be able to do this all the time, and I'm as good as everybody else, so... Who cares? 
complacency. That's the first mistake. And secondly, despair. I never am going to make it. This seems to work for some people, but it's sure not working for me. I trip up all the time. I don't know if you remember the last message in this series, but we were looking at the kind of groaning and frustration we all feel as we wait for the redemption of these physical bodies. It's in Romans 8, uh, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, and we know he's talking about Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan inwardly, as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. We groan because we feel the fallenness, the weakness of these physical bodies. We groan under those limitations while we wait for the resurrection of the body, transformation of the body. Now most of us, we don't really need someone to explain to us the kind of limitations these physical bodies have. And we've learned to wait in hope for that glorious resurrected body. We all know the kind of pain and suffering, the effects of age. You've lost loved ones through disease. You get out of bed in the morning and you go, when did that back start hurting? I guess that's just going to be there for the rest of my life now. These physical bodies are such limiting things. But Galatians 5.5, 5, Galatians 5.5, 5, we wait in hope for righteousness. It's, it's not talking about our physical bodies. It's saying there's the same kind of limiting in our souls, in our spirits, our moral condition. So, so Paul is saying about our moral state, what Romans 3.23 says about our physical state. There's a groaning. We're not apathetic. We're not lazy. But we do, we do want a deeper righteousness. We wait with longing, sometimes groaning for the fulfillment of that righteousness. We don't wait with despair or with apathy. Paul says, in both the physical and the spiritual dimensions of our lives, we take courage in the certainty of our hope. We wait for the hope of righteousness. I think Paul thought a lot about this topic, waiting for the hope, the hope of righteousness. Because he he talks about it a lot. He wrote to Timothy, young pastor Timothy. Paul wrote to him, and he says this. This is near the end of his life. I fought a good fight. What do you think of a guy? <laughs> what do you think of a guy who looks at his whole Christian life with those two words? A fight. That wouldn't be considered appropriate, would it, today, really? It's kind of a, the Christian life is more of like a serenity now kind of thing. Fought the good fight. Finished the race. I have kept the faith. So it's not that he had backslidden, kept the faith, but look at this. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, and here's the phrase, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. 
I sometimes think, I, I think I've expressed it, I think we do it all the time in our singing. Just blither out words without ever considering what the syllables mean. I, I do it too. But there are certain phrases. What's a crown of righteousness? What's a crown of righteousness? You're going to get one. What is it? Do you picture somebody coming and plunking something down on your head that's going to be heavy and uncomfortable? I don't think it's a material crown at all. I don't think it's something made of gold and diamonds and rubies and sapphires. It's a crown of righteousness. I think it means this. Here's what I'm waiting for in hope. Every time I fail my Lord, I don't want to get complacent. I'm as good as anybody else. And I don't want to get despairing. This is just not working. I think it means this. There is coming a quality of righteousness that will mark my life from the crown of my head down. It will govern absolutely everything about me. It will crown my whole life. There is coming to me a righteousness that will rule every part of my being with perfect consistency one day. You won't believe how nice I'm going to be. I will no longer be partially righteous. I won't even be substantially righteous. My life will be crowned with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness will no longer be my hope. It will be my normal existence. And I can't wait for that. We need to remind ourselves of this every day we live. There is no strength in self-condemnation. Just beating yourself. There is no peace in fear. There is no future in apathy. We need to relate to the Father as an heir. My last text and I'm done. Read this with me, okay? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Learn that lesson in your Christian walk. There is a coming righteousness. All those longings for pleasing God will be completed. Your life will be all of one piece. Don't be wicked. Don't justify anything. Don't be condemning. Live with the hope of righteousness.